And we are live for anybody who caught that. Uh, and I'm delighted to say, uh, with me today is my guest, Marek. We've <laughs> 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 just practicing this. Zblowski. It's a great icebreaker, isn't it? <laughs> Marek Zblowski, who uh, yeah. is an entrepreneur and an author of the book, uh, the fantastic book, I must say, Chasing Black Unicorns. How building the Amazon of Africa put me on Interpol's most wanted list. Marek, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. Pleasure to be here. From Barcelona, am I right? Yeah, that's where I'm based right now, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so where do I start with this book, Marek? I mean, what? <laughs> it's like an odyssey. I mean, it was extraordinary, right? From Polish mafia to building yeah this this huge platform internet platform in 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 uh, in nigeria to as you, as the subtitle of the book says ending up on on uh on interpol's most wanted list i mean yeah you tell me where 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 shall we start this story Barry? yeah that that was the thing which kind of led me to write the book because at some point you realize that the personality type that you have and the countries you used to live in and the business I was involved in kind of were giving me so many adventures that I'm either extremely lucky, and this is why everything is so crazy and interesting, but if I run out of luck, at some point I might die, so I have to write this into the book. <laughs> I remember someone actually told me this. So, so basically, for those who don't know the book, my story in, in one minute is that I'm born and raised Polish. Uh, I did my first business initiatives in the early days of the Polish um, financial markets, the early 2000. That wasn't the early capitalism, but it was still pretty early before we, we made some big money doing financial uh, investments. That was before Lehman Brothers. And then we lost all the money. But then I kind of jumped on the wagon of startups, uh, Silicon Valley, a lot of money from VCs. And I was kind of able to uh, get back on the feet and make some money again in this business. But because I was do doing technology businesses in very strange sectors like funeral business, I unfortunately had as my competition people that were basically pretty shady characters. But then I kind of fell in love with this crazy chaotic sectors when you want to disrupt something and bring technology, which is what led me then to sub-Saharan Africa and building e-commerce businesses in Nigeria. And then again, having extremely positive adventures like doing an IPO with one of the companies I helped build but at the same time you know being wanted by the Nigerian police for two years and, and almost ended up in jail for 20 years uh, just because someone bribed the police because that's that's the strategy to get rid of someone uh, that is your business partner that you, you just don't need him anymore so I just realized that at some point hmm I want to share my story because there are a lot of business insights, both from the early days in Poland, Eastern Europe, and in Africa, because not too many people do what I'm doing, which is technology businesses in those markets. But at the same time, those adventures are entertaining in a way. So I figured if I combine my biography with some business knowledge, I make a business book which is easier to consume because you also have those stories in between. Uh, and that's basically what my what my idea behind this book uh, was. And you be the judge if I was able to kind of balance the, you know, the adventure part with the with the business insight part. You know? Right. And um, yeah. I mean, it's it's rock and roll. I mean, it, it could, you know, it, it 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 it's as entertaining as any sort of rock star biography. I mean, it really was. 
I, yeah, it was just extraordinary. I mean, I've got three kids right now. Uh, two kids, sorry, two kids, both three. So my sleep, I'm, I'm generally sleep deprived. <laughs> so I'm trying to get into <laughs> okay. bed at like 8.30 every night. Like I'm trying to race to get into bed to see if I can get some semblance of sleep before the kids wake up. I feel so but I was, I was up like, reading your book, like, no, Mac, <laughs> I need to sleep. But it's, it really was very, um, very compelling, very compelling read. Um, Thanks so much. Um, I, I had this actually issue because uh, when I decided to first publish in Polish, because Poland is a very small market, so I figured let me publish in Poland, see what the feedback of the book is before I'm going to publish this in the US or UK and so on. And and I decided to go after the very biggest publisher I was able to find in Poland because I knew that people will actually not believe that this is the story based on facts because of you know all those crazy amount of things that happened to me in the last 15 years, really, in Nigeria, in, in, in Poland, and in Kenya, and so on. So I was lucky enough to get on board the biggest publisher in Poland, uh, and one of the oldest ones, and they kind of audited me <laughs> to see if I was really on Interpolis, if I really want the case against the police, if everything that I'm writing about is actually the truth, because they were risking publishing my book as non-fiction <laughs> and then being accused of, of this just being a pure pure fiction. So, yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> right, and even so on the internet, because I was researching around it a little bit, there, there are still a few, a few uh, dissidents out there, right, who's, you know, who are still uh, claiming that, you know, it's all exaggerated and it's not true and Marek's just uh, bullshitting you. So it's, it's still, like you still got this, um, the detractors out there, right? Yes, and, and that, that's actually a part of my book as well, which I think is now relevant from a totally different angle with all the Black Lives Movement and everything that is happening in the States. The racial tensions are extremely strong everywhere. They're just not visible always. And the problem I had, and I'm not putting myself here as a victim uh, because I'm not a victim. Uh, I'm just telling the type of challenges that I had faced in Nigeria in 2012 is that, you know, besides us, uh, me and an investment fund that invested in us from Germany, Rocket Internet, building one of the early e-commerce groups in, in Nigeria, in Sub-Saharan Africa, we had a lot of jealousy and hatred from the local entrepreneurs, local Nigerian entrepreneurs, because clearly they didn't have the access to the capital we were able to have. Because if you were a local entrepreneur from Nigeria in 2012, you had no chance of getting money from a VC from Europe, because they wouldn't just trust you. But here, here you see those white guys, those European boys, coming with millions of euros because they were able to raise in Germany or in Switzerland and building um, an, an e-commerce group on their soil in a way. So you see a lot of uh, similarities with, with the old colonialism, right? And uh, it's not like we, we, we took their chances because they had no chance to get the money from those VCs. But then after a couple of years, the people that used to work for us they were able to get some background experience and then raise money. We've educated the market and, and those people in the end were also able to raise money from investors. But my point is that we had a lot of hatred from the local guys because in a way we were privileged. And that is absolutely true because this is how capitalism works. So when, what happened is when I had to take my story public because I had this big problem with Nigerian corruption, police, the court was involved, my court papers were missing. I had to take this to the press to uh, put pressure on Interpol, on the global police, because Interpol doesn't like press, doesn't like bad press. And once I got the bad pre the, the press on me, 
Interpol finally started to look at my case to see what is happening to this guy in Nigeria. Why is he, you know, uh, going uh, so loud and, and attacking the police in Nigeria? A lot of people that never were really liking what we were doing in the region kind of jumped on the wagon with those bad guys because it was convenient for them. Oh, there's this guy that I never liked because he's this white privileged dude. Um, oh, he's involved in something. So it's convenient for me to kind of accuse him because it fits my emotional position towards this case already. And uh, I have to say, it was a very, very painful process for me to to deal with all those haters that felt convenient, comfortable to, to accuse me of being actually the bad guy in the whole case because they had some different emotional motivations towards me that came from my early days in Nigeria, as I already explained to you, which were related to the history between Europe and Africa and, and the color of my skin. So I, again, this, this is not putting myself as a victim here because I was taking advantage of the privilege, whether I like it or not, but to put these things into the context. So I got a lot of hate for even bringing the thing up from Nigeria because people were saying, how dare you? You've made money in Nigeria, you've built this company, and now you're going public and telling the whole world that you are a victim of corruption. Why would you do this to the country that gave you so much? And, and my defense was, I'm not attacking people, I'm attacking the problem in the system. Like, if we don't uh, analyze the problem, we would never fix it. Like, this is unfortunately the, the painful truth. Nigeria is one of the most corrupt countries in the world when you look at statistics. And I'm not saying this because I hate it. I still love Nigeria nevertheless, and I'm so thankful to it. But we need to point out the problems, right? Right. And, and as you point out in the book, it was, it was Nigerians who helped you fight the corrupt system, right? To, to clear your yeah, name. Yeah, that's, that's the irony of the story. Uh, and for the, it, it, it was also the best proof of all those haters. They just don't read what, I, what I'm writing. They don't watch what I'm talking on conferences, on TEDx, etc. I keep repeating that. I actually consider myself as, as a very lucky man because for so many years, and I've been doing business in Nigeria for the last eight years, this was only that once where I became a victim of corruption. And I could have been a victim so many times. It was painful, but only once. And the people that were really involved in this whole blackmail against me were not really Nigerians. They were just Indians and a guy from Ethiopia with American passport that just took advantage of the, of the system in Nigeria. And if it wasn't for the Nigerian lawyer that I had, those Nigerian friends that I had, and in the end, Nigerian federal court that have ruled that police in Nigeria was corrupt in my particular case, I would never be able to, to, to speak to you. So the moral of my story is actually the opposite of you know, people that were, were accusing me of, which, which is also why I wrote the book, because I wanted this to be documented, because it's not an easy thing, because the, the longer ago it was from now, the easier it is to break it down into one sentence and then kind of miss the whole point. Yeah. Well, maybe it's worth just unpacking a little bit that whole scenario. We've sort of, you know, we've sort of got, we've cut straight, straight to the punchline yeah, really, but just, the point, yeah. yeah, just to give people a bit of the background. So how, how you, and yeah, just take us through the sequence of steps that had you, yeah. I guess, first moved to Nigeria, let's set a bit of context from Poland and then, and then the steps that led up to you being on this list. I mean, I, I know that's in a sense, you know, the, a big chunk of the book, yeah. but, you know, in a few minutes. Of course. So um, long story short, I was in my 
early 20s. Um, I was this typical startup guy. I dropped out of university at the first year because I wanted to be like Bill Gates and Zuckerberg. And only after some couple of years, you realize that it's actually against the probability of being in any way successful if you, if you drop out of university. But it's not what you write, read in the press. And I had a couple of smaller and bigger uh, successes in Poland with, with startups. I was able to sell one company. But at some point, I've realized that I kind of hit the ceiling, that I can't build this company beyond $1 million revenue per year. Because first of all, I never had any professional, any educational background because I dropped out of university. And I never really worked for anyone. Most of the companies I worked for were actually the companies I also founded. So how could I gain any background? And I decided at some point that I need to take a step back in order then to do a couple steps forward. And in, if you want to be an amazing uh, manager, you probably want to graduate from Harvard and then work for McKinsey and then go to a multinational. But if you want to be a great entrepreneur, especially in the online space, you want to work for guys like Google, Amazon, Alibaba, at least for some time, and then do something on your own. And Rocket Internet is like the Amazon of Europe uh, or Alibaba of Europe. It's what one of the biggest e-commerce companies in the world. They are already in more than 40 countries. They have different brands. A lot of people, young people that want to be in the online business want to work for them at least for a year or two. And I was one of them. And unlike any other candidate that is, you know, post-Harvard that wants to work for Rocket, I had experience from Poland. I already did something. Uh, and I just wanted to work for them. And I said, just hire me. I will do anything. And I was just extremely lucky that they said, you know, Everyone we want to hire, no one wants to go to Nigeria now to open this e-commerce business with us. They wanted to open e-commerce, online travel, and a couple of other uh, verticals. They said, we're going to hire you for very small amount of salary. But if you build the company together with us from scratch, after three years, you will earn your shares. So in a way, they were building the company and hiring another co-founder to it, uh, like a manager that earns his, earns his shares instead of a salary, so he's more motivated. and that's. There were seven of us. They opened seven verticals. I was responsible for, for online travel. And that's how they sent me to Nigeria. And at that time, I just wanted to work for Rocket Internet. I didn't care where it's going to be. All I knew about Nigeria was that it was Boko Haram, 419 fraud, and that you know the British colonized Nigeria in a very bad way. They actually colonized you know whole Africa, almost whole Africa. Then they decolonized, divided it into some fake countries, created in an artificial way, and then left, and they left it in a never worse state. So I was a total ignorant in terms of, you know, what this continent, amazing continent, really represents. I just wanted to work for Rocket Internet. And what was supposed to be a two years adventure, uh, just to learn something and then come back, basically changed my life. And uh, it's, it's been eight years. I left then after some time, after, you know, doing the IPO, making, getting my shares, opening other companies. and. And I've been still doing it. Uh, it's not only Nigeria now, it's also Kenya and South Africa, but it really shaped my, my interest, both geographically and, and uh, sector-wise. Right. Uh, so, that's, so that was the first stage of Nigeria, uh, meaning why I left Wender, which was working for Rocket Internet. And uh, I guess the missing point is now how I ended up on Interpol. Most of the <laughs> So, and, and, and to get to two years in was pretty extraordinary, because I think you did say the book, most people are, are gone within a year, right? from Europe who go to work in Nigeria at Rocket, right? Oh, yeah. So, that, I mean, that was another funny story that after working a year for them, I was already, I mean, the, the oldest there. Like, no one has worked longer, <laughs> which was crazy. Um, 
which, which tells many things, like maybe the recruit, recruitment wasn't done in the best way and, and so on. And also it wasn't the easiest market to work in, uh, at least then. And three years forward, when I decided, okay, I think I've learned my lessons. In deep inside, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm not a manager for a bigger company. I, burned, I earned everything I wanted to earn. I fell in love with the region. Let me open a company this time on my own. Uh, where, where I'm my own boss and maybe find some local business partners to do this with me. And especially when you want to open a business in an exotic country, the common knowledge is that you need to find a strong local partner to kind of, you know, warn you from doing stupid things, warn you from the bad guys and so on. Um, again, big problem with corruption. Everyone tells you you want to have some protection from the bad guys when they go after you. Um, no one tells you is that sometimes when you choose the the local partner in a bad way, he, he turns out to be the bad guy. <laughs> um, but long story short, we've been running the new company, which was a software for hotels, for around a year and a half. And what started as a very normal conflict inside the company management board about you know the strategy of growth, fundraising, and so on. Because like in every startup, we had a lot of problems and a lot of conflict. It's typical. What has started like a conflict has really escalated to a real fight to who's going to kick out whom from the company. Um, so my business partner basically went behind my back to all uh, the shareholders and tried to convince them to kick me out from the company. And instead, they would, they would get more power. What he didn't assume is that they will actually all turn to support me and my vision of the company. And I actually did to him what he tried to do to me. So we basically voted him out of the company, which was the first time and the last time when he kind of tried to get, get rid of me from the company in a legal way. It's, you know, you can talk whether this is nice or an asshole move, but it's within the, within the law about, you know, the war for power in the company. And that's how he underestimated me back then. How I underestimated him afterwards is that for him, the options of getting rid of me haven't finished yet because he had this whole arsenal of other very successful tactics that work, work well in Nigeria. And one of them is basically buying an arrest warrant that basically locks you from anything. Um, I wasn't able to travel anywhere. I was supposed to be moved to a Nigeria police station and then to jail the moment they catch me. And all my bank accounts was, were frozen. Uh, and the moment everything happened, I got a phone call saying, if I'm going to do what I was asked to in the beginning, in the very beginning, everything would disappear in a way. So basically, your whole movement, your freedom is, is blocked until you give back your company. And for someone doing business in Nigeria for 40 years, like my local business partner did, this is just one of very many strategies that you can do which for me was extremely new. Um, however, I was, I wouldn't say brave enough, I was stubborn enough and I was driven by revenge at the very beginning to fight this case the proper way and still show him that I will not be essentially blackmailed. And two years down the line, uh, the whole drama happened. I ended up being on Interpol most wanted list. We can talk about how Interpol works and why, this, why it's so easy to put someone there and how hard it is to take you down. Uh, a lot of court cases in three different uh, law structures because I had to have a court case in Poland, in France, in Nigeria. I won it all. I spent more money than the company was valued at, 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 
at the very end because obviously the conflict between the co-founders destroyed the company almost. Uh, but but learned a lot in the meantime. Financially, it wasn't the right decision. Financially, if I just gave do, did what they wanted me to do, I would be better off. But I guess at some point it stopped. It, it wasn't about money anymore. And, and tell us about the moment you get arrested. And yeah, yeah, just to take us yeah. through that and how the the decision that you made before that that so that that meant that you got arrested in Poland, unfortunately, right? It's uh, <laughs> one of the craziest stories of my life. Um, I was in Nigeria, and that was just after I've met my my girlfriend, uh, and it was that very early stage of our relationship. I think I just visited her in Dominican Republic that year, and then the, the Christmas was coming, and she never she was never in Nigeria before because we met in South Africa. And I wanted her at a to Miss come. <laughs> Team Miss World party. Yeah, but I met her at a Miss World party, which is another like James Bond style adventure. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I said that in. <laughs> I wanted her to visit me in Nigeria because you know it's it's not everyone gets to see Christmas in Nigeria. But then what she said, maybe you will come again for Christmas and you will meet my family. So I was like, ooh, this relationship is getting on another level. And what was so cute back then. Uh, really turned out to be uh, a life-saving experience for me because we went for Christmas to Dominican Republic, then we went to Barcelona for New Year's Eve, and then just after New Year's Eve we went to Poland to also meet my my family. Um, and I was supposed to be in Nigeria for Christmas and New Year's Eve, and and I changed my plans last minute. No one really knew about this, and on my flight to from my uh, from Warsaw to London, I think I was flying then. I was stopped at the uh, at the airport in uh, in Poland, and that's where I realized that there was an arrest warrant which was put in the system a couple of days before Christmas, uh, and that's where I was supposed to be arrested in Nigeria. They just didn't find me there because I left without telling anyone, which was another you know crazy story for people saying that I uh, I knew about it and this is why I ran away, which was crazy. But I understand that someone wants to wants to say it, but because my girlfriend told me to visit her to meet her family, I changed my last minute plans and I wasn't arrested in Nigeria. Because if I was arrested in Nigeria, what would happen to me was very obvious. They would take me to jail and they would keep me there for as long as it was needed for me to sign the papers they were giving me to sign. And I'm not a, I'm not a tough guy. I would sign this the first day they would give me there. I wouldn't no amount of money is worth my health and, and stress. So I, that would be that would be a done deal. But because I was in Poland uh, when this whole thing happened, I felt confident enough that I may be able to fight this case from Poland as long as I won't be extradited. So what then happened for the next two years? And you know, I don't want to give out too much from the book, but as you know, there was police involved. I would have phone conversations; they would be recorded. I would have a meeting and I would go to the meeting with a microphone under my shirt because we were collecting evidence of the blackmail and corruption. But that, the fact of me being in Poland gave me confidence that I'm, I may be able to fight this remotely uh, as long as they won't win a case to extradite me from Poland. And this is why I had to have a case in Poland separately to a case in France in Nigeria because I had to convince the Polish court that the Polish government shouldn't let send me to Nigeria because it's all one big hope. Um, yeah, a lot of a lot of things to unpack there. <laughs> yeah, 
but it's uh yeah your resilience i mean that's what comes through in terms of a character trait you know that the ma- part of the Marek character seems to me is this sort of extraordinary resilience right to um to put up with the stress and you know and i know your health suffered at, at times and you know it seems like you know you had it pretty rough at times but you, yeah that that seemed to be strong in you is, it, is that right yeah which is why the first two chapters of my book really tell about my my story as a teenager really because now looking at everything from hindsight i was this typical you know bullied fat kid uh from those hollywood movies where you have those you know sexy girls and the popular football playing guys and then those geeks and nerds so i was that typical geek and nerd the only way for me to talk to a girl was when i was giving her my homework from maths um that couple of years of being bullied in in high school really built this internal need to uh, to have to prove to everyone around me that I am worth something because I had huge was the word you know self assessment problems you know what i mean uh, self esteem yeah self esteem problems which then turned to be an uh, extremely powerful tool in business uh because if you're really motivated to prove everyone around you the business rewards you you have a you have a personality issue that is rewarded if it gets deeper yeah because you make money just by showing off in in financial sectors you know i was in this in this whole subculture of investment brokers financial advisors insurance agents it was all about who's going to you know buy a new car and a more expensive suit so it was all that external validation which was in short term very powerful success tool but it can destroy you in the long term um so unless you know how to channel that energy and even till today which was proven with the whole interpol case and and the nigeria corruption case is that the harder it gets the more i have this internal i call it the positive irritation or the positive positive enrage positive rage that is not really uh, the it's a positive rage that gives me really energy and focus to uh, to operate and defend and do something because there's also this type of rage uh, that kind of makes you chaotic and you don't do anything you just kind of burn yourself inside but i have this thing that the worse it gets that the more survival instinct i have i actually have more problems to motivate myself when everything goes okay when i kind of reach the you know security level the satisfaction level business is doing great you know i just got myself a new bike or whatever and everything is great and i'm like okay now what now i feel now i feel demotivated and i want to lie and watch netflix for a day so i guess it just works the other way yeah yeah that's interesting and and on this show we you know we we've interviewed plenty of, of therapists and i've done a lot of my own work and something that emerges for me as i say that is that, that there's this need we sometimes have to recreate the conditions of our early trauma uh in order to resolve it right so we're all we're constantly trying to recreate those 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 scenarios for us to resolve yeah. it yeah that's like prolonged exposure or something yeah mm. uh when you kind of think about something over and over again until it just becomes more normal uh yeah there there must be something uh something in it um what what really helped me also while we were discussing this i remember that that night i spent in jail when i was arrested um i couldn't speak to my lawyer i was only able to make one phone call and then they took my phone uh and when they kept me in the cell for one night because they told me that most likely tomorrow there will be a decision to send you to nigeria that was in poland and i spent 
one night in jail, you know, being offline and thinking, okay, this is it. And I went through those like accelerated stages of grief, right? From I can't believe what is happening to extreme anger. I'm going to kill everyone that did this to me to my life is over. And, and then after I cried my eyes out and, you know, prayed to every God I was able ever to remember, that's where you start kind of peacefully thinking about, okay, what's going to happen? And I played in my head the best possible scenario and the worst possible scenario over and over again until I'm like, okay, I'm used, I already know what's going to happen from worst to best. I'm just waiting for the morning to, to realize what options is going to happen. Yeah, I think that's such an important point, you know, that, that we do have this inbuilt ability to process extreme emotion. It's called the grieving yeah. process, right? Yeah. But we kind of reserve it in our lives for, I don't know, the loss of a loved one. It's sort of, it, it, it's somehow we don't, um, we don't acknowledge it as a tool that's available as we can use all the time, right? Uh, both yeah. to grieve stuff from our past or is it, in that case, your present moment experience of, you know, being in jail cell and so on. Yeah, I think that was yeah. a, that's a very important point. Actually. Yeah. Correct. This one and, and uh, what, what I do remember is what really helped me, and I'm using this still today, is, is breathing exercise. Uh, it's just amazing how you can control your whole body just by controlling the breath. Um, there's a reason why when apparently when women give birth, the breath control is so important. Just <laughs> in every movie you watch, it's like breathe. Um, and it, it, there is something extremely powerful in it. Uh, by controlling your breath, um, you can really calm yourself down or focus and, and so on. Yeah. I find that with my toddlers as well, when they're really kicking. <laughs> like if I can, well, we have the expression in English. I don't know if you in, Bol- in, Pol- in Polish, but we have this expression. Um, I, you know, I didn't get a chance to catch my breath today. Right. To catch this yeah. idea of catching our breath. Right. And, catch my breath. Yeah. Yeah. Can, you know, can we catch our breath? Can we just get conscious and present to our breathing? It's so, so important. That's right. Yeah, there, there's something to it. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah I got that. So I, the other, so there were two places I thought I might, might want to go with this conversation um, outside of the the rock and roll tale um, that might be interesting for the audience. And that was one was around managing and leading, you know, software teams, which obviously you've mm-hmm. done quite a lot of, and we do have quite a, a you know big chunk of the audience are, are involved in in building software, managing, leading, or writing it. Uh, or uh, yeah, and the other part was the sort of the capitalism, the state of capitalism. It seems like you've had one experience of sort of capitalism, I suppose, at the sharp end. Uh, and it would be good, especially right now with where we're at, I suppose, in society, sort of zooming out a bit. You know, what what role is is capitalism playing in what we're currently seeing in the world? Um, but so I thought maybe start with the practical and on, on the software yeah. and then sort of zoom out a bit. So yeah, what, what, what have you learned about leading software teams and building sort of products and taking them to market? Yeah, so I think um, I'm at the stage, you're probably familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Where in right. the beginning. So I'm already, I'm going down the valley of death now. So with every bit of information I learn, I realize how little I have ever known. <laughs> so that's where I am right now both in terms of understanding, especially in terms of understanding the world around me. Um, lately, with everything that's been happening, COVID, uh, Black Lives Matter, so much social tensions, I was able to learn living in Nigeria and then South Africa, you know, one of the most complicated societies in the world. Um, because for me, it was all a shock coming out from a very homogenous country of Poland. We had our own share of problems, but for us, it was always black and white. We were the good ones. 
the Germans were attacking us. We were the good ones, the Russians were attacking us. That was so black and white. And then you realize when you move out to the other parts of the world how how gray everything everything is. Yeah. But anyway, um, for me, capitalism was always this compromise between your personal satisfaction and uh, uh, and also actually working in the favor of the society around you. Obviously, so capitalism has a lot of negative effects, especially when it's kind of getting out of proportion. We're talking about, you know, multi-corporations were not thought of when Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of the Nations and so on. You know, The disaster of ecology was not thought of. Uh, I guess it's a, it's a side effect of capitalism you have to get rid of. Um, but for me, uh, I, I really love the idea of, especially in Africa, when you see that and again, I was called a white savior for saying this. You know, um, um, I just love the fact that in, in in Nigeria I was able to build a software company, and I and I would hire twenty guys. Uh, it's easy to uh, really teach someone coding and programming. It's not as hard as people think. And then after four years, they obviously leave my company because they go somewhere else. Some of them open their own startup. Some of them open their own agency, and they tell you, you know, if it wasn't for you, I would probably have. Uh, car shop or i would probably sell fruits on the street and that's extremely uh, rewarding because in europe i would probably be able to build another mobile app for millennials yeah another tiktok um, so you see in front of your eyes that there's this positive effect of your business because you're not adding to the multinational you know another billion of revenue you're just building real business solving real problems of real people and then giving employment and i think that's the as the most beautiful part of capitalism at the, at the at the small level. So that's what was always so captivating for me in in frontier markets because you visibly see the impact of your business on the people around you, on the community, and that's really that romantic part of the capitalism. And and, and so that's why why I get this. Uh, that's how I see. I mean, I really like that small capitalism, you know, the, the real one. Um, yeah. But you were asking about managing the teams. Um, there's this stage. I think it, it's you, you. You reach that stage when you have around 20 people, 20 engineers. When you don't have control anymore, you have influence, and uh, it, it's the most challenging part for every manager is to switch from from someone that is micromanaging everything. And the efficiency of the team is just the extension of your own efficiency because you can still micromanage everything. To then scaling up from from those 20 people in your team whether this is engineers or coders or marketers it's just you know you can't directly manage more than 20 people maybe 30 if you're talented or 40 and um, then the scale of them the quality of a manager is really shown how how things perform after they they, they break they they go you know beyond the threshold of being able to micromanage everyone and remember everyone's name and that was always the biggest uh, uh, the biggest challenge um, for me um to be honest uh, and, and what, when you're and what, running um, yeah. online businesses in in the regions like Poland, I, was, I think i lost you yeah i was just going to ask ask so so what is it that you what shift did you have to make in your own style of leadership or the way you managed to 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 go from that sort of 20 people plus you know what what did you have to adjust in yourself oh you pay way more attention to who you hire because um when you are micromanaging everyone, you just want loyal people that do exactly what you tell them to do. Uh, and then you just realize when you, once you go, 
you go, you have 20 people, everything goes okay. And then suddenly you go from 20 to 40, you lose control, whether you like it or not. And suddenly everything falls apart. Your whole team stops performing at all. Your whole organization goes into bust. And that's just because you, you, you were hiring people that were only able to do exactly what you told them to do. And the moment you stopped having control, you just gave them more uh, uh, independence. Everything uh, collapsed. So you have to go back and start hiring people all over again. So um, the biggest lesson for me was how important it is to take your time to hire the right people because at some point, you know, it's like with your kids, yeah? I mean, you can't, you can't go with them to school every day. You're going to have to let them have your own life. So um, I always thought that recruitment is so easy uh, that I would speak to you for five minutes. I already know who you are. And uh, the more I work with people, the more I realized how 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 much more time you need to uh, to really understand whether the person is good fit for your team or not. There are still patterns in personalities, of course, but it's not 50 of patterns. It's probably 500 or 5,000, and you can't just guess it so easily. So, um, yeah, it's all about really trying to quantify personalities and to, to, to build a team that you can just let go and let them run on your own. Right. And I never thought of it like that, but I guess there's a probably bias within you as you build it. You, you don't want to hire people who are going to challenge you too much because you've got a system that's working with you micromanaging everyone, right? You can kind of control it. And so you're probably going yeah. to not want to, 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 to hire somebody who's going to challenge that. But yeah, once you get over a certain yeah, you time, hire you need... weaker people. Yeah. Because yeah. you, you, you don't want to spend energy on um, being challenged. Right? Exactly. That's exactly the thing. But then you realize that this is actually what you need. There's this... Uh, theory about diversity in the teams uh, um, when diversity in the team is not managed properly it will destroy the team uh, but if the diversity in the team is managed properly it will reach efficiency levels not available to uh, homogenic teams which are even managed by the best people ever we just need to know how to deal with it yeah? right and so that was the lesson you, you learned to hire people who were prepared to challenge you who could be leaders in their right um, in their own right i'm assuming being ready is one. I guess it was very easy to be ready uh, because it's great to have this, you know, this thing in your head that, okay, these guys are actually smarter than me and I can give them that I can trust them. That's okay. But finding those people, <laughs> knowing how to find them and where to find them, um, that's the trickiest thing. And, uh, you know, that was the issue with Nigeria, for example, because Nigeria has so much talent so many talented people there's you know the whole country is like you know more than 50 percent of the population is is younger than 30, 30 years old and in terms of their iq uh, or motivation to work extremely uh, they're all hustlers because they need to survive and extremely extremely talented people uh, with uh, a lot of talent for science as well for those you know coding skills um, but you have to uh, have proper training systems in order to turn those talented people into amazingly co-work, amazing co-workers um, and then make sure that they stay with you that the competition doesn't buy them out because you've spent all those you know hundreds of thousands of dollars on training hundreds of people and then suddenly they move to competition because you didn't take pay attention to them and so on um, so finding the, the right people and then making sure they don't leave as cheesy as it sounds you know it, it was the hardest part um, but that's, that's the thing about business, yeah? I guess everyone knows what to do uh, to, to, to run a successful business. The knowledge is out there, but 
if it was all about the knowledge, everyone would be a millionaire with a six pack. Yeah. It, it's about sticking to those terms. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I suppose it's also, in, in, uh, I mean, the other thing that we have a lot of uh, as a big theme on this podcast is complexity, right? We've had a lot of complexity yeah. thinkers on the show. And, uh, and what they will say is it's all, it's leadership styles and, te and techniques that are going to work are very context dependent and they'll continue to emerge, right? They'll continue to evolve. You know, what's needed of this complex adaptive system will continue to, to change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so returning to the, the capitalism question. So if then we've got this romantic notion of capitalism of, you know, small mm -hmm. companies who are, I guess, serving their community. Uh, and, and there's no doubt that when these these smaller companies have grown into the behemoths, you know, like the Amazons and the Googles and so on, they, they provide enormous, enormous value to the world at large. But is the the style of capitalism that allows for that a, a problem, do you think? It is a big challenge because it, that's how you look at it, it enforces everyone to be ready for change for constant change because i mean they're just like gmail you know replaced mail guys <laughs> um because amazon is so huge it can improve our lives by an ex by an order of magnitude in certain you know ways what amazon gives to us as a customer it's just you know it's so amazing to live, it's so amazing to live now in the city with uber and amazon or food, uber eats and so on and and no no local player could really do that a couple of years ago but now you kind of have to give space to amazon to keep doing this because you can't compete with amazon already at this stage and i think that the, the what really is needs to be considered when you see all those big guys doing amazing things and improving our lives is that it always comes at a cost for the small guys, which is not necessarily good, bad, as long as the small guys are aware of this, that whatever opportunity they had for the last 10 years is not there anymore. And they need to be mobile also in, in pivoting their own, their own business, because I don't buy the argument of, of small local shop dying out because everyone wants to buy on Amazon, it's the customer's choice. But I want the small local shop not to be abused by Amazon. If, if the small local shop works with Amazon, that is bad. That is not the problem of the system itself. That is just the abuse of the system. And at the same time, I want the small local shop owner to be aware that what kept his business afloat for the last 20 years might not be the case anymore. The change is coming. That's not necessarily good for him personally. He has to find something else, but it it has a greater aspect for the whole community because Amazon was able to do what he was not able to do. So, it, I mean, I always say everything has its good and bad sides. There's only avocado that makes everyone happy. <laughs> right, right, um, right. And so, so it sounds to me like there's something about in there about. Uh, not having being sure that these these behemoths don't abuse their position yeah which is where which is where the where the government has to come in that understands the dynamics of the society the fact that we have law that was built 100 years ago that tries to control something built five years ago that's a separate problem um and um, anti-monopole regulations are not against capitalism they're also actually supposed to support support capitalism so um, 
I, I guess it's a tricky thing. And then again, we're entering stages where the more books I read about, the more I realize how little I know. I guess there's always going to be a dynamic between um, the system being abused by the good guys and by the bad guys, and then you need the you need the, you need the balance of power between the powerful corporations that do amazing stuff uh, because they have the, the the money and the the ambition, the global ambitions, and at the same time having uh, evenly powerful governments that are able to sometimes slow them down if if one of the side goes too crazy. Which goes also the other way, right? If you have governments of certain countries trying to do too much control over their citizens, then you have those multinational organizations. Let's just say, you know, Twitter or Facebook during the Arab Spring that was able to counterbalance the, the force that was put on top of the citizens. So in a way, just like the balance of power in the last century between the West and the East was, you know, besides Cold War, <laughs> The balance of power is also good than having one guy that controls everything. I also see there's a lot of good potentially happening that you have the balance of power between the private sector and equally strong, uh, strong, uh, strong governments, and then media somewhere in the background. Yeah? Right. They still exist. <laughs> <laughs> right. 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 And that's so. So, the, so that's so. You're, you're so. Said what I'm interpreting here is that you you're fairly relaxed with these these corporations getting getting large it's just that you feel like there ought to be a, a a counterbalancing equally sort of strong government to keep them in check right my you know romanticizing capitalist soul being as naive as i am i don't see the size as a problem in itself because size you know big giants are sometimes can you know step on an ant without wanting to hurt it can also do something bad but can also you know in, 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 in trying, you know what I'm trying to say. Because we have those big companies, we can have them do things that no one else would be able to do. In the 60s, in the last century, only the United States and the Russian, and the Russia, the Russia, the Soviet Union, were, they were able to send people to the space. Or they say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, now that's another podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's an open that. And and now you can also have private corporations that that can do that. And I believe that it's pretty healthy to have that competition on the on the very high level between multinationals having almost as much as much power as certain political organizations. Because I think it's that type of competition that they need in a way. Um, because you know. The World Health Organization and the United Nations uh, are where those attempts to kind of try to govern the whole world together because we live in, in, in the times where we don't only have nationwide problems, we already have global scale problems, COVID, you know, uh, the climate change and so on, aliens maybe soon. Um, but it seems like these guys can't really find a common, common ground. So maybe they need some competition from the private sector. Um, with all its with with all its uh, bad and 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 good aspects, um, I just I just see it like this: that that additional complexity is not necessarily bad. Right. Yeah. Okay. No, that 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 makes sense. And because I came into because I'm just you know what what comes to my mind is that we want to start to move away from that style of capitalism uh, to something that's more purpose driven, uh, that less that's less sort of singularly focused on growth and return for shareholders and a kind of reform of the 
of the whole ethos of capitalism to something that you know looks a bit more like a world of b corps right you know yeah stuff but i hadn't really but yeah i guess there is a loss in that potentially that these these very large behemoth organizations can do things like get us to the moon and uh achieve yeah. things that perhaps the sort of the smaller as you say romanticized version of capitalism might not achieve for us Correct, and I'm totally with you here. I, I, I'm, I'm really a fan of this new coined term, sustainable capitalist. Uh, capitalism, when, when I see the four stakeholders of every business, you have the investors, you have the clients, you have the employees, and you have the planet Earth. Uh, and, uh, and that's for me also as a, a, a stakeholder. Um, I just, I don't think this is impossible to, um, to, to build the big company that is also good. The reason why big companies right now are so damaging for the environment is because it was all about investors' value. Uh, you know, a couple of percent up on NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange was more important than cutting those couple of thousands of square meters of trees somewhere in the Amazon because it was so unrelatable, right? Um, and obviously the money won, but if you build the consciousness of you know the negative aspects of both employees and clients and, and nature nature f also in the investors they will still allow your company to grow they will still have a lot of faith in your company they will still buy your stocks even though you're not squeezing out 30 percent of revenue right now because you have to you know you have to go down to 20 to save some trees and as long as the investors will be okay with it you can get the best of both worlds that's how i see it uh, as long as the clients will be aware where the revenue from the products you buy from, the companies which counterintuitively make less money because they have higher costs, because they pay pay more to protect the environment, those customers will benefit from getting more customers because they're aware of how this company operates. Um, as naive as it is, I think it's worth trying out. You know? Yeah, and, and that actually really turns with a recent guest, Tom Zaki, who's CEO of... Um... TerraCycle in the US, who are, who are um, committed to a zero waste world, right? So every so we can recycle everything. But he says he's, he says a couple of things which chime with what you said. One is he's had no problem attracting investors, right, as a company, and he's found people who are prepared to invest and put their capital uh, with his company. Uh, and and secondly, yeah, by taking this purpose led approach to business, he actually has a negative bar- marketing budget. So. So people actually come to him to give him PR, right? They come to him, they want to interview him, they want to get his story out into the press. So he, um, so, so there's, yeah, there's a sort of paradoxical upside to putting yeah. stakeholders further down the list. Or sorry, shall I say shareholders further down the list? Yeah, and um, I think the similar effect was, I think someone that really is, is, is doing this, again, it comes from Silicon Valley, uh, not because maybe they're the best guys in the world, but they have so much money, they can afford it. So um, you have uh, Mark Benioff, founder of Silicon Valley. I think he, 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 I remember always him when I think about this term, sustainable capitalist. His last book was really about it, Trailblazer, where he just basically said, I'm okay making less money, quote unquote, because I'm giving back more to the employees or the environment, but this will actually allow me to make more money because that creates PR, marketing, people are coming back to me. The whole point of fair trade was about this, yeah? Maybe fair trade as a concept was not implemented in the best way because there's a lot of abuse. It was one of the early attempts to do that. And obviously it's not perfect, 
but I, that's that's the similar concept yeah you you build you use the mechanism of the capitalism world which are in many cases des destroying us like you know the attention to branding but you you make something good a cool a cool cool thing to do and you're kind of using it in your own advantage so it's i do believe that you can sort out a lot of problems with those tools a lot of tools that are now destroying us can also be used to to, to solve the problem uh, that's how i see it yeah yeah and that's true and there's no reason why why organizations committed to that in that way can't become very large right and and do great things on in the world it's not like it's a rule of nature that they can't get big um that's that's also true and i think the other i think your point about environment is is right but i think increasingly the point about employees you know i think we are seeing this big disparity in income income inequality i think is, is driving a lot of the issues that we're seeing right now in the world and and business has a place a, a, a you know a role to play in that uh and yeah we see the income disparities within businesses right i mean the ratio between the average pay and ceo for example is um an extraordinary right now so i think the the environment includes treatment of other humans that's correct there's a, there's a great book that recently came out called the meaning revolution which kind of treats that um that was the word not the, the dissonance discrepancy the paradox of you know it, whether it's it's better to pay someone more pay everyone the same thing are you are you rewarded just by your own work or are you related by the by the work of someone else i guess i don't see a problem with someone being rewarded 10 times more than than the employee itself because of the amount of, of experience you have uh, responsibility and so on it's like in this joke, you know, there were there was this team that was they were trying to fix a boat for two weeks and no one could do anything, and then they hired this this old fisherman that was living there for fifty years. He came, he just you know touched one thing, hit it once, the boat was working, and then he tells them you have to pay me one thousand dollars, and they're asking him, but you only worked for one minute for us, yeah, but it took me two twenty years to 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 find find out you know what to hit them. So. Um, as long as everyone is rewarded in its own way that I am satisfied with what I'm doing, that's what I wanted to do. I find my meaning in, in doing my basic thing in this company. I'm not going to have a problem with the CEO making 100 times more than I, I, I do because my satisfaction as an employee does not come from comparing myself with the CEO, but comparing myself with my own goals. Right. That's a very, that's a fascinating way. It's not just that I might be paid less that might cause resentment because I, it, it may be that I've just not got any meaning in my work, right? Yeah, correct. And uh, that that comparison to other people um, is is so deeply embedded in us. There's this YouTube video where the monkeys were, I think, rewarded for doing something, and the monkey one when he was getting a grape, and the other one was getting a cucumber. And at some point, the one that got the cucumber just said, "I'm not doing this thing anymore because I'm getting some shitty cucumber while the other monkey is getting a grape." So even animals understand that difference in reward for doing the same action but we have evolved since then right because we, we need to understand that it's not comparing how many hours i spend every day in the office but also what my goals are what is my value to the company and so on because otherwise we would just end up with you know being extremely communist country saying that everyone everyone you know is to get one apple per day and one piece of bread and one bottle of vodka per day and we're all the same and this, this is an extreme we don't want to go back again either yeah i know something about this coming from a you know communist country and i and i still remember stories of my parents and grandparents yeah? 
Well, I agree with that. And, and I, I, I certainly, I still intuitively agree with that point. But what is interesting to me is that guy that, who runs the, the, what is it, the financial company in the States, Gravity, right? When he's put all of his employees, 70,000 bucks a year, right? Everybody, including him, all the same salary. And everyone assumed this would be a sort of failure of trying to apply communism to, a, to the business world. And the business is thriving like two years later, they're doing fine. So there are some counterintuitive examples of, of where you yeah. just equalize pay and it still works. It's, it's, it's interesting. Absolutely. Uh, I, I totally don't, it, it doesn't mean that giving everyone the same pay won't work. Uh, it, it can work, you can get everyone motivated. Um, I guess you have to analyze it case by case. I, I, I just wouldn't say that you can't have an extremely satisfied employee in other situation than just being paid the same way, the same way as a CEO. Yeah, that, that, that I think is right. Yeah, and, and I think your point about meaning is important. One meaning, belonging. Yeah, I don't know much about that company. I remember it was a payment solution. Payment solution. Um, yeah, yeah, and then. The question is, you know, how, how far you can go with such a business? Like, how the, the employees are extremely happy. How has the company evolved? Uh, what were the goals, etc.? Can you build a business that is growing uh, with such a business model? There was another one that tried to did the same, which was Zappos, yeah, which had its time of fame many years ago, just just before the, the purchase by Amazon. Uh, then there was this book, Delivering Happiness, and then it kind of went sideways back then. They tried to even remove positions of people, and it just all, all turned out to be a mess. Um, I guess it, it, there's just no one best way to do about it. There's just so many business models, so many teams, so many personalities. Um, you can't have one size to fit it all. No, I think that's right. That's, yeah, I definitely agree with that. But I, I also I do think we, we need to start asking serious questions about how we, uh, the sort of rules of, of um capitalism that we agree on you know or, or at least our priorities for how we play the game of capitalism i think you know, that does need to change. yeah 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 um so sorry one technical thing because um i only had one hour for the podcast yeah sorry I know we've run another over. podcast for the I, normally i wouldn't mind but there's there's another interview i have in i'm already late so i'm just okay. trying to, uh, uh, to 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 let you know so i'm not that don't come out as as rude no, no, I appreciate, no, I really appreciate your time. Um, okay, well, we should wrap it up. So, Marek, thank you very much. Um, yeah, extraordinary conversation, extraordinary book. I beseech all of you listening or watching uh, to go buy the book. Um, it, you know, thank you so much. Um, so if you don't mind me adding this, um, all the revenue from publishing of this book as well, all my speaking engagements, not related to my business, but related to this book, go to a charity uh which i also launched because at some point i realized that most of the charities run in a very very bad way to put it in the diplomatic words so for anyone interested in more just go to chasingblackunicorns.com and that's where you have all the information about the book and myself about the charity and, and everything that i do and thank you so much for uh, asking me all those questions and uh, i really enjoy touching new topics because um, everyone is asking me about the book and we're able to talk for a large portion about very interesting topics. So thank you for that. <laughs> good. No problem, Eric. All right. Good. Off to your next podcast. And, and thanks once again. It's been a, yeah. it's been a thank pleasure. Thank you so much again. I hope we stay in touch and yes. uh, speak soon. Bye-bye. Cheers, Eric. Bye-bye. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's 
human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.